Okay. Since we're all sitting, let's stand one more time, and we're going <laughs> to offer a prayer to Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for the Feast of Tabernacles, bringing us here to worship and praise you. Father, we pray that the time we have would, be, would certainly be a blessing and that we would learn new things from your word. We would leave inspired and energized through the messages and through the fellowship. And we thank you again for bringing us here. We pray that, again, you would watch over the camp, that you would protect us here, and that you would bless each one that's made the effort and sacrifice to be here. And we thank you and we give you all praise in the name of your son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is great to uh, see everybody here this uh, Feast of Tabernacles and um, a lot of new faces, or a lot of uh, familiar faces, but also some new faces as well. So it's just a, a huge blessing. Where Javon sort of mentioned it, I've never um, spoken on the angelic realm, so this is a new uh, topic for me, not a new topic in, in, in the sense of um, not knowing about angels, but, but providing a message on angels. So this is going to be a two-part series. First one's going to be uh, focus more on the uh, generality of angels. The message uh, title is Shedding Light on the uh, Angelic Realm. You know, when the Bible speaks out about angels, there's uh, a lot we really don't know. Uh, but there are some things we certainly do know. So we're going to focus on those things we do know today. We're going to take an in-depth look at what the Bible actually says about angels in the angelic realm. So here's just some of the items we're going to review. Uh, were angels created? I think probably most of us know that. Uh, how do angels appear? Now, we're going to really focus on uh, that also in part two. Are they immortal? Do they have all knowledge? Are they limited in knowledge? What is their purpose? You know, how does Yahweh use angels? Should they be worshipped? You know, we certainly see some of that today. Do we have guardian angels? Now, that's kind of a controversial topic, but I'm going to give you my opinion and the evidence for it. And uh, what type of uh, spirit beings do we find within Scripture? What type of angelic beings do we actually find? We're going to really focus on this one. Within the second part, we're going to speak about the cherubim and the seraphim and the ophanim and some of these angelic beings we find within Scripture, the throne room in heaven. We're also going to focus on the prophecy in Ezekiel 2. That's part two, not part one. Again, part one, we're going to focus on more of the general concepts of angelic beings. So now some of these items, again, you may already know. Some you may not know. Some you may not quite understand as well as hopefully you will after this series. And I hope something, so everybody will learn something from these uh, messages. So I want to jump in and talk about first where angels created. Where angels created. What do we find in Scripture? See a clue in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, Thou even thou art Yahweh alone. Thou hast made heaven the heavens of heavens with all their hosts. Now the word host here is, is real special and it's something we're going to delve into after we, read, after we read this. It says, The earth and all things that therein, the seas and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worships thee. Now it says here that Yahweh created everything within the heavens of heavens, including, as we see here, it says a host, the host of heavens. Now the word host, again, is a unique word. It comes from the Hebrew zabah, and uh, one of the definitions in the Brown Driver Briggs, Hebrew lexicon is a host of angels. So we see here that Yahweh created the angels. He created the angelic realm. Now, based on other passages, I believe that Yahshua the Son created the angelic realm. 
you know, we know from both the Old and New Testaments that Yahshua preexisted. And that scripture says that all things came through him. You know, we see evidence for this in Proverbs 30, verse 4. I'm not going to read these, but Proverbs 30, verse 4 is a really good passage. It's talking about creation there, and it says at the very end, what is his name and what is his son's name? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but if the son did not preexist, why would Proverbs 30, verse 4 ask what is his son's name? And then also John chapter 1, verse 1, this is a real key passage in Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15 shows again that Yahshua was in the beginning. He was the invisible Yahweh, it says, and that through him all things came into being. So again, I believe that Yahshua was the one who created the heavens of the heavens through the Father's direction, of course. Now, when were angels created? When was this done? What is the timing? We're based on Job 38, verse 4, and also 7. I believe that this was done before the foundation of the earth. Now, here's a reason why I believe this. Job says this. Job, and again, 38, 4, and 7 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, verse 7 continues. It says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of Elohim shouted for joy. And I believe the reference here to sons of Elohim and also the morning stars, these are references to angelic beings. These are references showing that the angels existed before the foundation of the world. Now, just as a side note, the sons of Elohim, that phrase, can also refer to human beings. You know, we see many, many examples of that in the New Testament. We know that, for instance, Adam is called the son of Elohim, and we see that term designated also to true believers. So again, we find here that angels were created, and they came into being before, it says, the foundation of the earth. I want to move on and ask, how do angels appear? How do angels appear? What do they look like? Or, you know, well, with this one, there's not one right answer. So we're going to really focus on just one answer today, and we're going to really focus on the other answer in part two, because angels are very diverse. And that's one of the things I really find fascinating about the angelic realm, just the diversity we find within it. And it, I think, is more um, diverse or complicated than what we, many of us may understand. Now, I believe that most angels can appear as human beings. And they also, I believe, have a divine form. We see that with Yahshua, that he could appear in physical form and, and also in, in, in a divine form, as we see in Revelation. Also, in part two, just again, that we're going to look at other angels, again, the cherubim, the seraphim. And there's another angelic being. It doesn't really call these angelic being by name, but if you look at the Hebrews, Ophan, and uh, the Jews call them Ophanim, and uh, those are as well as we'll see in the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel. Now, I want to turn to uh, Hebrews 13, verse 2. 13, verse 2 of Hebrews. There it says, Be not forgetful to entertain angels or strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares or not knowing. So the writer of Hebrews says here that it's possible that as believers we can entertain angels. So what does this tell us about their appearance? What does this convey to us in, in how they appear or look? Or it tells me that they appear as human beings, no different from any of us. You know, for example, we have the three men coming to Abraham in Genesis 18, a real, real interesting passage here. Of course, we know that one of the beings in that case was called Yahshua or Yahweh, and uh, we believe that it was a preexistent Messiah there because Scripture says no man has ever seen or heard the Father. And Yahshua was that, that word. He was that Debar, that Logos that we find in the Old Testament. Now, we also see an example of the uh, two angels in Genesis 19. They came to, to uh, the city of uh, Sodom, and Lot recognized these men as, as, as special, recognized that they were unique, but the men of the city simply saw them as men. If you remember, they wanted to bring them out. 
So again, they look like ordinary men. Why and how Lot recognized these men, does Scripture doesn't really say. Now, we also see examples of this also in the New Testament with Yahshua the Messiah. You know, after his resurrection, you might remember that Mary, she was in the garden, right? And she, she saw the gardener. She saw Yahshua, but she mistaken Yahshua as a gardener. So Yahshua looked like a normal human being. So what do we learn here from Hebrews and these other examples? Of what we learn is human angels can appear just like you and I. You know, it's possible today that we can have an angel right, right amongst us and we would never know it. It's kind of a sobering thought if you think about it, that angels can be with us and we would never know it. And we see many, many examples of this throughout Scripture. You know, in this case, we obviously know that there's a difference, though, between flesh and blood human beings and angelic beings, but both can appear in physical form as we find through Scripture. Now, again, later in the series, we're going to see examples of different angelic beings. And for me, I'm really excited about this second part because it, it delves into um, the cherubim and the seraphim, the ophanim, and all these amazing prophecies we find within the Word. And, and uh, it's unreal. It's, it's, it's not of this earth, if you will. And, and uh, some go so far to say, <laughs> as they say it's UFOs or something of that sort, but we know certainly that's not the case. Well, I want to ask now, are angels immortal? So let's move on. Are angels immortal? Luke. Luke 20, 30, uh, 35 through 36 gives us a key with that. It says, But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor give it a marriage. So we learn something here about the resurrection. We see here that in the resurrection, marriage doesn't exist. Those of us married, the, that relationship will not exist in the kingdom. It goes on to say, Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels. So it makes a comparison to those of the resurrection into angels. It says, and are the children of Elohim, or the sons of Elohim, being the children of the resurrection. Now, there are several things I want to point out here. To begin with, Yahshua says here that he is describing, or as we see, the first resurrection. Now, for those who may not know, when will this resurrection happen? When will this resurrection occur? Where this resurrection will happen at the return, the second coming of Yahshua the Messiah. And we believe that this resurrection will happen probably on the Feast of Trumpets. It's amazing how many prophecies, I'm not going to turn there, but how many prophecies we find within Scripture of trumpets at Yahshua's coming. 1 Thessalonians 4 is a real key passage, but we see other passages, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we see uh, examples in, in Revelation all talking about a trumpet at the return of our Savior. So trumpets seems to certainly depict the return of Yahshua the Messiah. And also, as we all know, the resurrection of the saints. Because those two events will occur at the same time. Yahshua is going to descend from heaven. When he does, we know that he will then resurrect the saints. Matter of fact, what do we know about the resurrection? We know, again, that it will occur at the return of Yahshua the Messiah, his second coming. We also know that the angels, the messengers, will go forth to the four corners of this earth and gather the elect. What an amazing, have you ever considered the, the image? You know, sometimes I'll, I'll ask everybody to close your eyes. I'm not going to do that today. And, but just try to imagine what it will be like to see Yahshua coming back with all these thousands upon thousands of angels, and they then disperse to the four corners of this earth to gather the elect of Yahweh to bring them to the Messiah at his return. It's really an amazing thought if you've ever considered that image. We also know from Scripture that the dead will rise first, followed by the living. And that the dead and living will then be changed from flesh to spirit. And that's an amazing thing. We're going to actually see an example of that and, and what that means to be changed from flesh to spirit. Some of the differences between the mortal and the immortal. The differences between the angelic and, and the carnal as we see within scripture. 
So we see here that when this happens, those of the resurrection, those of the saints that are going to be found worthy, will live forever. They're going to be immortal. And it says here that they're going to be immortal, no different from the angelic beings in heaven. So we see, a, again, a comparison between angels and those of the resurrection. We also see here that those in the resurrection, they're going to be called sons of Elohim and also sons of the resurrection. Isn't that an amazing thing? And sons of the resurrection, sons of Elohim. This also conveys this concept that we're going to be part of the, this, this, this majesty, this, this family of Yahweh. So it's not just about the resurrection. It's also this concept that we're going to be part of Yahweh's own family. We're going to be sons and daughters of his. And that's just such an awesome concept when you think about it. So what do we learn about angels here? We learn that angels are immortal. We also learn that they live forever. Now, with this in mind, I want to ask, can angels be destroyed? Some people ask that. Since angels are immortal, they will live forever. Can they also be destroyed? Or, you know, I believe the answer is yes. And I'm going to use Satan as an example. So in Ezekiel 28, verse 18, it there prophesies that Satan will be turned into ashes. That's, again, Ezekiel 28, verse 18. Paul in Romans 16, verse 20, provides an incredible prophecy. He says that when Yahshua returns, that he's going to bruise him. Now, the word bruise in the Greek refers to a lopping off or to a destruction. So I believe that based on those two passages, Satan will be destroyed when Yahshua comes after the millennium, of course. And as we see in Revelation 20, verse 10, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, keep in mind that Satan is simply a fallen angel. Satan is a fallen angel. Matter of fact, as we're going to see in the next message, Satan is a very special angel, though. He was a cherub or a cherubim. He was part of that class of angels. In uh, that passage, it says that he was an anointed cherub within the Garden of Elohim. That's an incredible just insight there with that passage. We're going to see that in part two, part two, this concept of Satan being in the Garden, being this cherub until he rebelled and iniquity was found in him. So while angels can and are immortal, you know, we see here that they can't be destroyed. Now, we also know that angels are limited in knowledge. They don't know everything, and that's really good. That's a good thing. Yahshua gives an example of this in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, But at that day and hour knoweth no man. Now, listen to what it says here. It says, No, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. So there's two things we find here really important. But we see here that Yahshua is referring to what? He's referring to his second coming, his return to this earth. So what do we learn here about the resurrection? He says here that no one knows the exact day or hour of his coming. And this includes, as he says here, the angels. So we see here that the angels are unlimited in what they know. The angels don't know everything. The angels certainly know more than we do. They're on a higher level or plane, but they don't know everything. There's much that they do not know. Now what about Satan the devil? Does he have all knowledge? Well, you know, while Satan is a very powerful angel, Again, as we see in Scripture, in the beginning, he was an anointed cherub within the Garden of Elohim. We'll see that next message. Uh, he does not have all knowledge. Satan does not have all knowledge. In fact, one reason we know that is it says here that the only one who knows the timing of Yahshua's coming is only the Father. So based on that, the assumption is, or the understanding is that not even the Son knows the timing of his return. Only the Father. The Father alone knows the timing of the second coming. And that shows that even though angels are certainly, again, on a higher level, they are limited in what they know. Yahweh, our Father in heaven, is only all-knowing and all-powerful. You know, this is one reason we know that the Father and Son, by the way, are two separate beings. 
some people believe, most people believe, and who, who believe in the Bible believe in this concept called the Trinity. Some believe in what's called oneness, or both basically state that the Father and Son are one being. The Bible shows something different. The Bible shows that the Father and Son do not share the same knowledge, that there are certain things that the Father knows that the Son does not, as we see here. So again, as we see here, while angels are certainly above human beings in knowledge, they are not all-knowing. They are not all-knowing. I want to move on and ask, as believers, should we worship or give reverence to angels? You know, we actually see people doing this. Some faiths, some denominations give reverence. Of course, you see in the Roman church some of that, and you see also in other denominations this reverence for angels. And that's not, not something we should be doing as believers. There's multiple passages showing that as, that as disciples of the Messiah, we're not to reverence. We're not to worship angels in any way. So I want to share with you two examples. Two examples. First one is in First, uh, first Peter. One of verse 12 says, Unto whom it was revealed... That not unto themselves, but unto them did minister the things which are now reported unto you, but have preached the good news unto you, the Holy Spirit. Actually, this is not the right passage. I don't think it was. So you can either listen. I will turn this. Colossians 2.18 is the uh, passage I had in mind. I knew that did not sound right. So uh, Colossians 2.18. And uh, there in this passage it says, Let no man beguile you of your reward and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. So you see, we find a warning not to be deceived into worshiping these angels. It says, in worshiping of the angels, including into those things which you hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And by the way, just just as for grins here, what lesson do we find here from 1 Peter 1 verse 12? I actually thought I took this slide out for time's sake, but since we're here, we'll just sort of review this. So 1 Peter 1, verse 12, for me, it again, it shows that angels, again, are limited in knowledge because there are certain things that we are privy to that they desire to look into. Does that make sense? So again, they are limited in what they know, that we, in some ways, we have more insight than the angels in heaven. Have you ever considered that? That's kind of an amazing thought when you, when you consider the fact that, in some ways, we have greater knowledge than the angels in heaven. But getting back here to Colossians 2, verse 18, we find here this concept of not worshiping angels. Now, we also see an example of this in Revelation. Revelation, let's see here if I have this one right on the slide. Revelation, nope, somehow I missed these. So uh, Revelation 22, I'll read this just out of the Bible here. And again, this shows by example that we're not to worship angels. So verse 8, it says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and I, and when I heard... And seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. So we find here John of Helm was falling down to worship this angelic being. Verse 9 says, Then saith he unto me, this is the angel speaking to John of Patmos, he says, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren thy prophets, and of them which keep the saying of this book, Worship Elohim. Worship Elohim. So we see here, where, who should we be worshiping? Where it says here that we should be worshiping Elohim. Who's Elohim? This is Yahweh. 
Yahweh is where our worship goes. You know, we're to reverence the Son. We're to respect the Son. But even the Son said that he was lesser than the Father. Even the Son said that we were to worship the Father. And that's a very important concept as believers because some people, they they worship the Son. They really do instead of the Father. And we as believers should be worshiping the Father and not the Son in that sense. Formal worship, as I put it, should be given to the Father, not the Son. So from Paul in Colossians 2.18 and also here, And at Revelation 22, we find that we're not to be deceived into worshiping angels. And we find here through the example of Revelation 22 that uh, the angel told John of Patmos, don't do it. Don't worship me. Now, what was the reason the angel gave to John of Patmos? Why did the angel say, don't do this? Or he told John that he himself was a fellow servant. You know, it's an important point to understand as believers that in some ways there's not a lot of difference between the angels in heaven and human beings. In many ways, we all play the same role. Have you ever considered that? You know, we all play the same role in some way. You know, we are all, number one, subservient to the same Father in heaven. And we are messengers in some way. These are angelic messengers who are doing Yahweh's work from that standpoint. But we as human beings, we're also doing Yahweh's work, aren't we? So in many ways, we serve the same role. We're all messengers. We're servants in the Most High. And for that reason, we find here that the angel tells John of Patmos, don't fall down and worship me. So again, we see here that we're not to give worship or any special reverence to angels. Now, I think I have this one on the slide. Luke 24, 33 through 43. This passage is describing Yahshua after his resurrection, and we find some real nuggets of truth in this passage. I want to read through it. So 33 through 43 says this, And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Master is risen indeed. So this is after, this occurs after the risen Messiah, after he had risen from the grave and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread they were eating, and as they thus spake, now listen to this, Yahshua himself spoke, stood, I should say, in the midst of them. He simply appeared in the middle of the disciples and said unto them, peace be unto you. So he, he gave them shalom. He goes on to say, but they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. We're going to talk more about that. The word spirit is kind of an odd expression here. And he said unto them, why are you troubled? Why are you concerned, he's asking? And why do your thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. So he, he shows the disciples his hands, his, his wrists, where the nails went through, and his, his feet, his ankles, to, to show, to confirm who he was. But he goes on to say, handle me and see me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they yet believed not for joy and wondering, he said unto them, have ye here any meat, any food? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Now, again, we find here a description of Yahshua in his post-resurrection body. Now, I believe what we see here would also apply to angels. So what we see here, I believe, again, we can apply to the angelic realm. Number one, and the reason I say that is, number one, the Bible says that we're going to be resurrected in, Yah- in, in, in the glory 
as Yahshua too was resurrected in glory. It comes from the Greek word doxa. We're going to read, read about that in, uh, later. Number two, you know, as we've already read, Scripture says that we're going to be raised, we're going to be resurrected as the angels in heaven, that we're going to be immortal. So if we're going to be resurrected in the same glory as Yahshua and also be like the angels in, in heaven, we would reason then that Yahshua too shares a similar form or body as other angelic beings. So with this in mind, what do we learn in this passage? Number one, we see here that Yahshua was simply able to appear before his disciples. He just simply showed up out of nowhere. When this happened, the disciples believed that he was a spirit and not the person of Yahshua. Now, what does it mean here that he was a spirit? You know, I've always found this a little bit strange, why they were afraid, why they were concerned. And really, what did they mean here when he said a spirit? What does this refer to? Well, there's different beliefs on this, different views on this, and many commentators believe that this was an evil spirit, and uh, this word spirit comes from the Greek pneuma. Now, I want to def- uh, define this from Strong's. In Strong's, it's defined as a current of air, that is breath, by analogy or figuratively a spirit, that is human, the rational soul, by implication, vital principle, mental disposition, etc., or it says superhuman, an angel or demon, or divine geodema, messiah spirit, or the Holy Spirit. So we see here that this Word pneuma, by the way, that's uh, counter, parallel to the, the uh, Hebrew ruach, ruach pneuma, same thing. And matter of fact, they're defined much the same way between the two languages. But we find here that one of the definitions is a, is a demon. Now, based on the fact that the disciples were afraid here, some commentators believe, again, that, that the disciples thought this, this was an evil spirit. Now, that's conjecture. We don't know that. We really don't. But what we do see here is eventually they realized that this was indeed the risen Messiah. After he says, you know, look at my wrist, look at my ankles, you'll see the evidence. You'll know. And touch me, he says. Touch me, you'll know. As a matter of fact, we see that here. He, to, to convince the disciples that he was not a spirit, he uh, tells his disciples here, for a, fle- a spirit hath not flesh and bones. Flesh and bones. So as we see here, Joshua verifies that angelic beings have it flesh and bone. But he says not blood. I don't know if anyone's really caught that, reading that passage, but we see here that a flesh and a spirit being of flesh and bone, but not blood. Why do you suppose, why do you suppose that is? Well, you know, just to get back to the angels uh, in this flesh and bone, just as a real uh, quick side note, I don't believe that this is physical body as, as we have. I think it's some sort of different body, but certainly can't appear in a physical form as we see throughout Scripture. Now, the reference to the blood, what do we see in the Old Testament? Or in the Old Testament, we know that the life is in the blood, right? The life is in the blood. What For human beings, for animals, we cannot exist without blood. But if we see here that there's a difference between angelic beings and human beings, and that is one has blood, one does not have blood. That life force is different between the two beings. And I believe probably that Ruach HaKodesh is what preserves the spirit beings. It is a spirit essence. Now, in reference... Again, to the blood, we see that in the Old Testament. For a moment, I want to ask, how is it? How can spirit beings appear and disappear at will? But also then assume physical form that can even eat. You know, we find Yahshua eating here amongst the disciples. How, how is that possible? How is it possible in one way to be a spirit being, to not be, to not, be um, not able to interact in the physical, but yet be a spirit being? Being. I want to share with you a theory that Ellen Allen's uh, father, uh, Elder Don Mansager, believed many years ago and on this issue. He believed 
disturbed beings, including angels, could either speed up or slow down their molecules, allowing them to either transcend or engage in the physical world. Now, while this is only conjecture, for me, it makes a lot of sense. It really explains, you know, especially when you understand the makeup of an atom. I believe the atom is obviously the makeup of this universe. And uh, one of the things I learned in college many, many years ago, my, my microbiology course, is, is that there is more room or space than solid. There is more empty than solid space within an atom. Now, something I did not know, I was doing some Google searching on this, and this is from education.jlab.org. And it says this about the hydrogen atoms. Really fascinating. It says a hydrogen atom is about 99 point. Let me see if I can get this right here. 99 point nine 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 six percent empty space. Isn't that amazing? Did you realize that there's that much empty space within within an atom? It says put another way. This is something maybe we can maybe better understand. It says put another way. If a hydrogen atom were the size of the Earth, a proton at his center would be about 200 meters or 600 feet across. Now think about that. You have the, the size of the earth, and then you have 600 feet, and that would be that proton. And that is the empty space within a hydrogen atom. So again, Elder Don believed years ago that angelic beings were able to speed or slow down their molecules, allowing them to either pass through solid or engage within that, that physical realm. And again, this is conjecture, but for me, again, it makes a lot of sense. So I want to summarize some of the key, uh, key points here. Number one, spirit beings, as we see here, can simply appear at will, which is really amazing when you think, I mean, they can just show up, and they look just like you and me. Number two, they can appear in physical form, including having flesh and bone, it says, so you can touch them, you can feel them. They have all the indication of something physical, and yet we know, again, that they can be divine and they can transcend that form. And number three, they are able to interact in the physical realm, including doing things like eating and eating and drinking, which I've always found just amazing. You know, as a side note, in Hebrew, or Genesis 18, those three angelic beings that came to Abraham, what did Abraham do when those angelic beings came? He prepared a meal for them and they ate. They ate. Now we see all the other examples of that as well. We see an example of, of angels receiving food. Now, in some cases, they did not partake of the food, but in the book of Judges, you know, we see the, the angel of Yahweh in those passages interacting in, in two instances. And in both instances, we find that food was brought. Food was brought, or food was offered in one and brought in another. Now, the apostle Paul also provides some insight on what it means to be an angelic being. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 42 through 44. Now, this is referring to the resurrection but again, we know that we're going to be like the angels in heaven. So what we find here corresponds to the angelic realm. It says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And, you know, if we read on, we find also in that passage that the physical body is first, right? And then, and then the spiritual body. That's the order as we find through Scripture. Now, Paul draws here a contrast between the bodies we have now and the bodies that we're going to receive at the resurrection. You know, for me, this is one of the most inspirational passages, passages we find in all of Scripture. 
We see so many wonderful truths here. So, so, so what do we find? Paul begins here by saying that we were sown in corruption. So when we're born, it says that we are born in corruption. But he says that we will be raised in incorruption. Now, the word incorrupt, corruption in Greek refers to decay or ruin. And, you know, the moment we're born, we, we begin to die. Well, the word incorruption refers to unending existence or immortality. You know, for a moment, consider the differences. You know, as human beings, we are preordained again to die, everybody. No matter, no matter who you are, what position, how much money, no matter what it is, we will all pass at one point. But as a spirit being, Scripture says that we will live literally forever. You know, the Bible describes the life we have now as a vapor. One of my favorite books, as many of you probably know, is a book of Ecclesiastes. Now, some people find that book kind of depressing. I, I kind of get it. It is kind of depressing. But I think it's such a wonderful book because it, it gives us such amazing wisdom when you consider what we find within it. I mean, this is Solomon, and this is the wisdom that Yahweh poured upon Solomon. And we learn so much from that book. And one of the things we learn again is this life, the body we have, and everything about it. It says it's a chasing after wind. There's nothing beyond it. You know, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And again, we know that in other places, this life is compared to as a flower, which quickly fades away. And it is amazing how quickly life goes by in many ways. And um, it is that much greater when we, when, when we understand that and we compare that to what we're going to receive in the resurrection, that we're going to be immortal and live forever, again, as the angels in heaven live forever. Oh, Paul continues here. He says that we were sown in dishonor, we were born in dishonor, but we will be raised in glory. Now, the word dishonor in Greek refers and means infamy, shame, or disgrace. So there's really nothing special in many ways about how we're born, how we're sown, as, as it says here. Now, the word glory, this is a very special word, and I want to sort of focus on this for just a moment. It's an important word to understand. Now, the word glory comes from the Greek word doxa. Now, just for the record, this is the same word used to describe Yahshua's own resurrection. It says that Yahshua was raised in glory. Well, that Greek word glory in that reference is doxa. Now, this is the same Greek word used for those of the resurrection. So, you see, we're going to share in the same type of glory, the same type of doxa that Yahshua partook in when he was resurrected from the grave. So what does this Greek word doxa mean? What does the word glory mean? According to Thayer's, the Greek lexicon, it says this. And there's multiple definitions, but this one is specific to the resurrection. It says, quote, the glorious condition of blessedness into which is appointed and promised that true believers shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. It is a condition, it is a glorious condition, it says, that we're going to receive at the return of our Savior. What an amazing thing. And I believe that just as Joshua was resurrected, we too will share those attributes, by the way. As Joshua was able to walk through walls, I believe that we too will be able to walk through walls. As Joshua was immortal and will live forever, I believe that we will be immortal and we will live forever. You know, that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're here, right? Keeping the feast. We're here because we want to please our Father in heaven so that in the end, inevitably, we're going to be found worthy of this great promise. 
That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing, so that we're going to receive this blessed, this glorious condition at the return of our Savior. Now, Paul also says that we were sown in weakness. We were born in weakness. Now, this is true. And, but we will be raised, he says, in power. So the word weakness here refers to feebleness of mind or body. How many people can sort of vouch that this body is a little bit weak or feeble? I've lived long enough to know that. But we find here that after this, <coughs> that we're going to be raised in power. Now, the word power refers to force or something miraculous. And I think really it's hard to comprehend or even fathom the, the, the awesome, the understanding of what this means, the power. Being as a spirit being, not only will death not exist, we know that death will not exist. We, we see that in the Word. Matter of fact, in the second resurrection, what's the last thing that happens? In the great white throne judgment, what's the last thing that happens? Where it says that death is thrown into the lake of fire so that death itself will not exist. So we see that Yahshua will someday, when he returns, and then you have the thousand-year millennium, and after the thousand-year millennium, you have this great white throne judgment of the second death, the scripture says. And at the end of that, it says that even death will be thrown into the lake of fire. We also see that, as a side note, in 1 Corinthians 15. There in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, and once that happens, scripture says that even the Father can, can come. And we know that after this, that Yahweh is going to come down. He's going to bring his city, holy Jerusalem, with him, and he will always be with his saints, the believers, the elect from that day point. But before that, we know that scripturally, Yahshua must remove all the sin. He must remove all the enemies, including death itself. So again, we're going to be immortal, just as the angels in heaven. But, you know, beyond that, you know, we know that there's going to be no more pain or disease. You know, I know many of you here, some of you, you're, you're suffering physically. Some of you are suffering in in other ways. But we know that in the resurrection, all of this is going to be a thing of the past. And, you know, I would really like to just emphasize that for just a moment because, again, I know that some of you are suffering. And for those of you suffering, I want you to just realize and believe and, and know that your suffering will someday come to an end. So whether it's physical, whether it's some, some sort of other persecution trial, that all of this will someday come to an end. Because when this occurs, when we are raised in power, again, not only will we live forever, but we're going to be free from our diseases. We're going to be free from our sicknesses. We're going to be free from our limited ailments. And it's going to be such a wonderful thing. And I know for some of you, I hope and I think, and I believe that means a whole lot to you. You know, for me, again, the two things that really stand out here is the fact that we're going to live forever in, in this concept of being raised in power because when I think about that, when I think about the implications of what that means, raising in power, having this, this, this freedom from not only, not only death, but also sickness and disease is just an amazing thing. I want to change focus now and ask about the roles of angels. What roles do we find within angels? Now, I'm going to be honest, I could have spent probably an entire message on this. This is going to be a very condensed summary of the roles of angels, and we see more roles than what I'm going to review. But it's important to review some of the roles of angels. Now, in Scripture, the main role of an angel is what? The main role of an angel is a messenger, a messenger. Matter of fact, the word angel in Hebrew literally means what? It means messenger. And by the way, the Hebrew word for messenger can also refer to human beings. It's not just exclusive to angels, but it means a messenger. Now, we see an example of this in Matthew 1, verse 18. I want to 
use this as an example. So Matthew 1, 18 through 21, this is, this is the birth of Yahshua the Messiah. It says, now the birth of Yahshua the Messiah was on this wise, when as his mother Miriam was espoused, engaged, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they, they had consummated or, or said their vows, if you will, she was found with the child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, being a righteous man. So we see here that evidence is Joseph was a good man. And not willing to make her a public example, he did not want to make her a public display, humiliate her. It says that he was minded to put her away privately, secretly. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, fear not to take unto thee Miriam thy wife, for, what, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now we should all be familiar with this account. Joseph here suspected that Miriam had been unfaithful. And scripture says that he was ready to put her away. Now the word put her away, this is a language indicating he was ready to divorce her. Now, I want to point out just a few things here, deviate a little bit from angels and, and give you some understanding because this is a very important topic, something we, uh, sadly, that we miss very much in this world today, and that is this concept of, of marriage. When does marriage begin? What is marriage? So number one, Joseph here was planning to divorce Miriam, even though Scripture says that they were only espoused or engaged. Now, think about that for just a moment. They were only espoused or they were engaged, and yet we find here that Joseph was willing to divorce or planning to divorce or put her away. You know, many people don't realize this, but the Bible shows that engagement, engagement when we're, when we're espoused, that that begins marriage. You know what the Jews would do? They would actually sign a contract pledging the two in marriage, and that was a binding pledge. Now, the only exception to that that, that would break that pledge was, was as Yahshua gives in the exemption clause, fornication fornication but after that that that, that's not true you know as we see in Matthew 19 when two people come together and you know I I just can't emphasize this enough because what we see in the world today is very sad it really is very sad that people today don't understand the sanctity the holiness of marriage whenever I counsel anybody for marriage I I always emphasize this point look when you get married please understand that there is no such thing as divorce Right? There's no such thing as divorce. And I'm gonna, I would encourage you all to really take that to heart. There is no such thing as divorce. You know, too often people look for that as an easy out. And it's not an out. It's not something we should do biblically. And even if we do divorce in man's eyes, I believe in the Yahweh's eyes, that doesn't hold any weight. And the reason I say that, Matthew 19, Yahshua says many things there, but one of the things he says here is, is once people, two people come together and uh, they consummate that marriage, they pledge, and they, they, they say their nuptials, it says that man is not to separate what Yahweh has, has uh, joined together. That Yahweh, that man is not to put asunder what Yahweh has joined together. You know, we also see in Romans 7 verse 2, Paul saying something similar. He says and shows there that we are bound for life. That we are bound for life. And there are no exceptions, not that I see in scripture. And, and you know, years ago, decades ago, I think this was kind of an understood principle. But as a nation, as with many moral concepts, we've gotten away from it. People no longer understand the concepts of marriage and what that really means based on the word. You know, divorce was such a dirty word back in the day. But today, you know, it's acceptable, and and that's because we've declined as a culture. Now, in this example, getting back on topic here, what happened? Where an angel came to Joseph after he was contemplating what he would do with Miriam, and 
after finding out, okay, she's with child, and as we all know, that happens only one way, at least what, what we believed and what Joseph understood. But he tells Joseph in a dream not to fear, not to be concerned, because he says, what is conceived in your wife, and she would have been his wife because they were engaged, and that's when marriage begins, that it was by the Holy Spirit. And as we know, this is in reference to the birth of Yahshua the Messiah. So we see here that the birth of Yahshua the Messiah was not by man, certainly was not by Joseph, but it says here that it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was through the power of Almighty Yahweh. We see the Holy Spirit represents the power of Yahweh. It's another concept that as believers we should and need to understand. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power of Yahweh. It's one and the same. Some people believe that the Holy Spirit is the third person. No, the Holy Spirit is the power. I'll give you two real good indicators that this is a power, not a, not a person. Number one, the Holy Spirit, and look it up. You know, if you don't believe me, look it up. The, the Holy Spirit is never prayed to. Have you ever considered, have you ever realized that, that the Holy Spirit has never prayed to? Number two, in Paul's salutations, I think there's 13 different instances of this. In Paul's salutations, he always opens up basically the same way. He says, you know, greetings in the name of the Father and the Son, right? Same way. He never says, never, never, never says, greetings in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Never says that. So if the Holy Spirit was a third person, part of this triune relationship, or we should see many examples of Paul saying, you know, greetings in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we don't see that. We don't see that. So, so for me, those are really two good indicators of this relationship between the Father and Son. Again, that the Holy Spirit is never prayed to, and also that Paul never, never uses the Holy Spirit in his salutations. You know, the other thing, too, here, just as a, just as, I mean, it's a little bit of comical to think about because it just shows the insanity of some of this, but if... If the Holy Spirit was a person, the Holy Spirit then would be Yahshua's father, right? Because he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. But everybody understands that the Son is the byproduct of the Father, not of the Holy Spirit. But yet, Scripture says that he was conceived through the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is a person, that would, by, by reason, logic, would state that then the Holy Spirit is the Father of the Messiah. We know that's not the case. Now, we also see here that the angel communicated to Joseph when... The angel communicated to Joseph in a dream. So not only can angels communicate to us when we're awake, when we're conscious, but also, obviously here, they can communicate to us when we're in a dream, when we're unconscious. And that's something I'm not sure if I really realized until this message, that they can communicate us to us through a dream. I certainly know that Yahweh can communicate us through visions and dreams and whatnot, but we find here that this, this angel communicated to Joseph in a dream. Now, we see many more examples of this. Again, I could give an entire message on this concept of the roles of angels. Uh, they, they are messengers. That is really the main role of angels. And we see this all throughout Scripture, especially though in the books of Daniel and at Revelation. We're going to see examples, by the way, in part two of Daniel. Some incredible examples. I'll sort of uh, whet your appetite here. The uh, example is when, um, when uh, Michael, the, the angel, was receiving a, a message for, for, for Daniel, but was restrained... It says, from the prince of Persia. I'm not going to say much about this. But he's restrained until Michael the archangel came and removed that, that, that demonic presence. It's a real amazing um, uh, nugget of truth, if you will, into the angelic realm. Now, we also know angels serve other roles. One role is to protect mankind. We see an incredible example of this in 2 Kings 6. 2 Kings 6, 
uh, 15 through 17, it says, And when the servant of the man of Elohim was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? You know, how are we going to defend? How are we going to respond to this army? And he answered, he said, Fear not, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Yahweh, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Now listen to what he sees. It says, And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And here's an illustration of this. No one knows exactly what it looked like, but I thought this was a great illustration to give us at least an image of what he may have saw there. So what do we see in this passage? Do we see the Syrian army? They entrapped Elijah and his servant within the city. Of course, the servant sees this, becomes concerned. You know, what are we going to do? How do we respond to this, to this attack, to, these, to this force? And Elijah tells the servant here something. He says, don't be afraid. And he says, don't be afraid because there's more with us than with this army. And, you know, I don't think we as believers always realize this. I believe the same thing is true for us, that Yahweh can do the same thing. Matter of fact, I get off course a little bit, but, but uh, there's accounts from the Six-Day War of stuff like this, of, like Israeli soldiers, and, and the, the armies flee. And, and they said, why did, why did you flee? And they said, because we saw the army behind you, and there was no army behind them. So I believe that Yahweh has worked even in modern times. There's evidence that Yahweh has worked even in modern times for the Jews, that he's protected them with miraculous signs. You know, it's, it's amazing. There, there's some videos out there that gives testimony, these soldiers and, and some of the miraculous things that they saw and witnessed, and they could not explain. And I think the only explanation is Yahweh was with them, just as we see here Yahweh with Elijah. So what do we see here? Elijah prays, and he prays that, Yahweh would open the eyes of a servant. And when he does this, his servant sees what Elisha saw. You see, Elisha saw this, I believe, the entire time, it appears. But the servant did not. The servant did not have the, the vision to see these things. But Elisha did. But when his eyes were open, he saw the mountain full of horses, and it says, chariots of fire. Chariots of fire. Now, what are these horses and chariots of fire. I believe that these are angelic beings. I believe that these are angelic beings. You know, as we know, they were there to protect Elisha from this Assyrian army. And this is one of the few examples that gives us some insight, I believe, into the spiritual realm. I've always believed that much of what we see in the physical realm is patterned, if you will, from the spiritual realm. In this case, it appears like the spiritual realm has horse-like creatures. It says horses with chariots of fire. They have to exist if we see them here in this passage. You know, in many ways, again, I believe that the angelic realm is more similar to our physical realm than what many we may realize. Even the tabernacle, as we know from Scripture, is a pattern of what exists in heaven, Scripture says. It's also important to realize that man was created, how? Man was created in Yahweh's image. He was created in Yahweh's image. So again, much of what we see in the physical world, I believe, is patterned from the world that exists on that other plane. I want to consider one more thing in this message, and that is guardian angels. This is a little bit more controversial. 
But from what I see in Scripture, I believe that we may have guardian angels, and not just children, but even adults. So we're going to see, look at two examples. First one is in Matthew 18, verse 10. And there in Matthew 18, verse 10, Yahshua speaking, says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. You know, so important as believers, by the way, I'll just say this real quickly. It's so important that we are cognizant of our youth, right? We need to be very cognizant of our youth. We need to encourage our youth here. Some people, I've, I've seen in some cases that, that the children are, 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 um, are not encouraged. But as believers, I think as an assembly, we need to do our very best to encourage our children to walk according to Yahweh's ways and really make it enjoy, enjoyable to them. So Yahshua says, don't, don't despise the little ones. Don't despise the children, he says. For I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So we see here, it seems that angels or children have angels in which report to the Father. So we see one more example of this. Now this is in reference to Peter. Acts 12, verse 15 says, And when she knew Peter's voice, of course, Peter just got out of prison here. So they were praying, praying for Peter. And, of course, he's loosed. Yahweh loosed him supernaturally. And he comes to the door to those who were praying for him. He says, She opened out the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, So, so this lady, she thought it was Peter. But those that heard this lady said and they said unto her thou art mad you're, you're crazy but she constantly affirmed you know she was emphatic about this she said it was even so then said they it is his angel it is his angel now in matthew 18 verse 10 again Yahshua seems to verify there that children have guardian angels and you know it's a good thing by the way the way children are that they have some sort of guardian angels behind them i know i'm appreciative of that with my two daughters especially my youngest one he says here that their angels do always behold the face of my Father that is in heaven. So, you know, I, I just don't, I, I have a hard time seeing angels or children not having guardian angels. Now, again, as we see here in Acts 12, verse 15, there seems to be evidence that even adults may have guardian angels. In this passage, again, when it was assumed that it was not Peter at the door by those who, who uh, heard uh, this, this lady's testimony, and uh, they said, no, it's, it's not Peter, it's his angel. We're obviously here, and this is a speculation, but the Bible does specifically say that it, that, that, it, that, that, it, that it was his angel. And again, I mean, I think it shows that the um, concept of guardian angels may extend to, to believers, if, if not all adults. Now, as I said in the uh, beginning of this message, when it comes to the angelic realm, there is much we do not know. And, you know, for me, I like to know when I speak on something, I like to have all the facts, and maybe that's one reason I've never spoken on the angelic realm, but... But, you know, we, there's also a lot we do know. And uh, we, we looked at some uh, insights today, some very basic principles of angels, some uh, attributes of angels. And, uh, but, but as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, it says here that we all look through a glass darkly. And this is especially true in the angelic realm. But, you know, someday when we're resurrected, we will understand all this. And it's going to be like second nature to us at that point. Now, part two of this message, I'm going to review again some specific types of angels. And to be honest with you, I'm more excited about part two than I was part one because you really get to the nuts and bolts of, of these angelic beings. And we're going to talk about the cherubim and the seraphim. And again, another angelic being that I wasn't even accustomed to by name, but through the research, the ophanim. And that's really more by a Jewish thought. In this message, we're also going to look at how Judaism defines the hierarchy of angels. I would say just right off the bat, don't, don't put a lot of stock in that. Uh, it's sort of like Christianity. There's just a lot of baggage and, and, and tradition there. 
But it's kind of important to understand how Judaism views uh, angels, the hierarchy of angels. Matter of fact, they have a list. And really depends on who you turn to, because depending on the rabbi or the scholar, if you will, at that time, they would define the hierarchy just a little bit different. But we're going to look at one specific scholar, and how, a very famous scholar, and how he defined the angelic realm. We're going to look at the top ten uh, layers of the angelic realm. We'll spend some time on that. Again, it's just more of a point of interest. I'm not putting a lot of stock in it, as in this is what Scripture teaches. And frankly, I don't believe Scripture teaches that. But it's kind of interesting to see how the Jews view it. And then we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the specific examples we find from the Bible, looking again examples of the cherubim. And it's really amazing. I mean, there's things I've learned as I'm going through this uh, message, doing the research. And uh, like uh, cherubim, for instance, I'll give you some, some insight now. You know, in Isaiah or Ezekiel 1, we also see this in Ezekiel 10. Matter of fact, it's in Ezekiel 10 that identifies. But the cherubim, we have the living creatures. The living creatures are cherubim. And we see they, they have different wings, a different number of wings, depending on what... Ha- so it just is an incredible. And when you think through these things and, and, ki- and, and, and contemplate them in your mind, it's just incredible to uh, think about some of the amazing creatures that exist in the angelic realm. So with that, I'd like to uh, certainly uh, welcome everybody here to the almost Feast of Tabernacles and uh, wish everybody a very special feast blessing. And may Yahweh bless you.